You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Boutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, as, as we tackle chapter 15 in 1 Samuel this morning, the title of today's message is The Disobedient Dictator. The Disobedient Dictator. You know, it's been said that, that the only game you can play with God and actually win is follow the leader. <laughs> well, this morning in this chapter, we see that Saul's playing games with God. Uh, he, he's acting as if, as, if, uh, as if the rules don't apply to him. It's, it's as if he's forgotten that even though he's the king of Israel, he still answers to the king of kings. You know, it was Aristotle who had said that, that he, he who cannot be a good follower cannot be a good leader. And that's Saul's problem. And so because this morning Saul disobeys the king of kings, God rejects him as the king. So now with that, as we pick it up now in the first nine verses, we see that the issue at hand was about listening and obeying. And so in verse one, we read, and, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel, <coughs> pardon me, in opposing him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and, and, and devote to destruction all the things that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, uh, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and, <coughs> pardon me, and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people uh, to the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and, and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and lambs, and all that was good, they would not utterly destroy them, but all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So now this starts off in verse 1 with, with, with Samuel reminding Saul, he, saying, you know what, the Lord sent me to anoint you as the king of Israel. But then he goes on and adds and says, now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. And that's the key. He says, listen to the words of the Lord. So the key here is, is, is listen. Now, now, by the way, we all know that, that there's a difference between listening versus hearing. Am I right? Anybody else have children? Um, there's a difference between listening and hearing. I mean, listen, it's, it's one thing for you to hear the words coming out of my mouth, but it's something else for you to actually pay attention and actually listen to what I'm saying. You know, I heard of, uh, of years ago, Professor William Osler, uh, a professor at o Oxford Medical School. And so in front of his students, he, he held up a, a bottle of yellow fluid and he held it up and he said, you know, uh, this contains a, 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 a sample for analysis. And he says, you know, it's possible uh, to, to diagnose the disease that someone has just by tasting. Now, at that point, he then dipped his finger in the bottle and then put his finger in his mouth. And then he passed the bottle around to all the students. And, and he says, now I want you to do exactly what I just did. And so one by one, they all took the bottle. They dipped their index finger into the bottle and then put their index finger in their mouth. And this went around one by one until finally it was all uh, around the room. And, and, and then Dr. Oslo said, he says, now, I want you to understand what I mean when I talk about 
actually paying attention and really listening. He says, because if you were really paying attention, then you would have noticed that I put my index finger in the bottle, but I put my, my middle finger in my mouth. He says, why is that important? Well, because this bottle of, 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 of fluid was urine. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> well, Samuel this morning is saying, you know, it's not enough just to hear the, the, the words coming out of God's mouth, but you actually need to listen to them. If you're reading from the, from the New King James, verse 1 would read, Now the, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over Israel, over his people. Now therefore heed the voice, the words of the Lord. The, the, the Living Bible paraphrases it by saying, Now be sure to obey him. In fact, that's a, that's a perfect translation. The Hebrew word that's used here, shema, not only means to hear or to listen, but it's literally translated to obey. You see, that's the issue at hand in this passage. The issue at hand was obedience. You know, uh, for example, it's one thing for, for, for you and I to know what the Bible says about a certain issue, but it's another thing to actually do it, to listen to it, to actually obey what it says. For example, it's one thing for us to know that the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Now, it's one thing for us to know that that's what God's word says, that Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says that, but it's another thing for us to actually say, you know what? Because that's what God's word says, because God said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that these things, then you know what? We're not going to move in together. We're not going to live together. We're not going to sleep together until after we get married because the Bible says keep the marriage bed pure. So it's one thing to know what it says, and it's another thing to do what it says. Like James says, to not only be a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And so Samuel this morning is saying, you know what? God is the one who made you the king, but you know what? He can just as easily make someone else the king. He's saying, you know what? If, if, if you refuse to listen to God, if you don't obey God, then he can find someone who will. Reminds me of that age-old wisdom that my mom used to say over and over again as I was growing up. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. Samuel's like, God can take you out of this. And so, what is the word? What's the command that God is expecting Samuel, I'm sorry, expecting Saul to obey? Well, he tells Saul to, to go and wipe out all of the Amalekites. All the men and women, children and livestock, wipe out all the Amalekites. Now, as we read this, we're like, you know, who were the Amalekites and, and why would a loving God command uh, Saul to wipe all of the Amalekites out, even the women and the children? Well, the answer is, is that Amalek was actually a descendant of Esau. In fact, he was Esau's grandson. Now, anybody remember the, 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 the bitter sibling rivalry between Jacob, who later on his name was changed to Israel, as in the, uh, the founding forefather of the nation of Israel? Anybody remember the deep, bitter sibling rivalry between Jacob and his brother Esau? Well, that sibling rivalry lived on through Esau's offspring, the Amalekites. In fact, to this modern day, uh, there are some modern day Arab nations that trace their lineage, trace their heritage to Esau and the Amalekites. In other words, that sibling rivalry is still living on to this very day. <coughs> and so what happened? Well, God says in verse 2, he says, he says I've noted what, Am what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. 
Listen, if you go back to the book of Exodus and also Numbers and also Deuteronomy, you'll see over and over again that the Amalekites uh, had, had attacked Israel. As, as Israel fled from Egypt, all of a sudden they would get attacked and ambushed by the Amalekites. Uh, for example, we, we, we read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 45, it says, then, then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. That was just one attack, but this happened again and again. For example, it also happened in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17. That dyslexic moment was brought to you by Pastor Paul. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, we're told that as the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, as they're wandering through the desert, the Amalekites snuck up from behind them. So it was a sneak attack. They, they snuck up from behind them and they attacked those who were straggling behind, namely the women and the children, and the elderly, the weak, and the sick. They were attacking those who, who were physically disabled and mentally disabled. In other words, they were attacking the defenseless, those who could not defend themselves. And they didn't just attack them, they were brutal. They were savage in their attack. And in Deuteronomy 25, God says he's going to remember this. And that there's a day coming when they're going to have to pay. Well, that day has come. And so why did God command Saul to, to wipe out all of the Amalekites? Well, because first of all, remember, the Amalekites attacked them first. They drew first blood. And not only that, but God knew that the Amalekites would never stop until they wiped out all of the people of Israel, until they wiped out every Jew from the face of the earth. And so now God gives us command to wipe out all the Amalekites. But Saul doesn't keep the command completely. He keeps one of them, the king, alive, and some of the livestock. And so now as we pick it up in verse 10 through 21, we have Samuel's reaction and also Saul's excuses. But first, Samuel's reaction, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I made Saul the king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So now we have Samuel's reaction. What was his reaction? Well, first of all, it says that he was angry. The Hebrew word here, kara, means to burn or to, to be kindled or to be hot with anger. Now, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary points out that this word suggests a, a holy anger, a, a righteous indignation. Now, what's righteous indignation? What's well, being angry at the right thing uh, for, for, for the right reasons and then handling it the right way. It's been well said that, 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 that you can tell a lot about a person uh, by, by the things that make them laugh, by the things that make them weep, and the things that make them angry. Do the things that break God's heart break yours? And so Saul's disobedience broke Samuel's heart because it was breaking God's heart. The things that broke God's heart were breaking Samuel's heart. And so he's angry. He's burning in, with anger. But now notice, in his anger, notice Samuel doesn't lose his stuff, if you know what I mean. He doesn't snap. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's not throwing stuff all over the place. He's not punching holes in the wall. None of that. Now what does it say? It says he was angry. He, he was burning with anger. And then it goes on to say, and he cried to the Lord all night. He cried to the Lord. That word cried, uh, literally it's a word that means to cry out in agony. It speaks of being in deep emotional anguish. But the interesting thing about this word is that it can also be translated a battle cry. 
a battle cry. So on the one hand, he's, he's, he's in deep agony. He's crying out in anguish. But on the other hand, he's declaring war. It's a battle cry. And yet, what happens? Well, we notice that he takes all this bitterness, all this anguish, all this rage, and rather than unloading it on Saul, what's he do? He turned it to the Lord. He directed it to the Lord. He cried all night to the Lord. That was Samuel's reaction. But now as we pick it up in verse 12, now we see Saul's excuses. Verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel went to Saul, I'm sorry, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, blessed be the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lolling of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, I have brought them down from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice he says, the Lord, your God. Not my God, Samuel's God. It's as if Saul doesn't know the Lord. Samuel has the relationship with the Lord. He says, to the Lord your God, and, and, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you were little in your eyes, are you not the, the head of the tribes of Israel? Somehow my pages got glued together. Pardon me. There we go. He says, are you not the, heads of the, the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I, I've brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So we see a handful of things. First of all, we see that, that after the battle, it's as if Saul was so impressed with himself that he, he now builds a monument to himself. Not to God. He's like, you know what? This battle is a great opportunity for me to glorify me. He builds a monument for himself. And then along with that, then he keeps uh, the, the best of the sheep and the best of the oxen for himself. And then he keeps Agag, the king, alive. You have to understand, in that day, it was a very, very common practice that, that when you conquered your enemy, you would keep the king of your enemy alive and force him to be your slave. You'd force him into servitude, to be your servant. It was kind of a show of power, sort of a, a, a trophy of victory. And so now Samuel shows up on the scene and Saul's all boasting about how obedient he was and how faithful he was. You know, he says, I've obeyed God in all that he commanded. And Samuel's like, really? Well, then how do you explain the bleeding of sheep? And, and, and what about your trophy king over here who's bringing us coffee? How do you explain that? Now listen, this would have been a great opportunity for, for, for Saul to repent. This would have been a great moment for Saul to, to own responsibility for his own actions. And yet instead of repenting, instead of owning responsibility for his own actions, instead he's making excuses. It's like, hey, it's not my fault. The people did this. 
You know, the people, they, they're the ones that wanted to keep the animals and the livestock alive because they wanted to offer a sacrifice to God. It's not me, it's the people. Have anybody like this in your life? Anybody, when you confront them, rather than take responsibility, they blame others? I used to hear growing up, why did you make me hit you? Someone who takes responsibility is one thing. Someone who shifts responsibility is another. As Warren Wiersbe put it, he said, Saul had a habit of making excuses instead of confessing sins. He was always making excuses rather than making confession. But listen, you cannot blame others for your sins and at the same time repent for your sins. It's one or the other. You cannot own responsibility and yet shift responsibility. Either it's yours or it's theirs. It's not both. And so Saul doesn't repent. He doesn't own responsibility. He blames. He makes excuses. He's like, hey, we just wanted to offer sacrifices to God. And now as we pick it up in verse 22, he's going to find out that obedience is better than sacrifice. And so in verse 22, says, and Samuel said, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? <coughs> Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams for, the re for rebellion is as sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the, of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed, you, obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and, and, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor of yours who is better than you are. <coughs> and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he's not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned, yet, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. So now we kind of put this all together. Saul only, oh, you know, he, he, he's told to do one thing and he only carries it out, you know, part of the way. Samuel shows up on the scene. He's like, what have you done? And, and, and Saul offers excuses and he's like, well, you know, we did it so we can offer sacrifice. You know, I know I was told to, to wipe them all out, but we had to keep some because we didn't keep a little bit. We'd have nothing to offer to the Lord as a sacrifice. But it's been well said that partial obedience is still disobedience. And so Samuel turns and says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so Saul is kind of this personality profile who, who, who feels like, like, like his giving, like his sacrifice should more than make up for any of his indiscretions. 
This reminds me, years and years ago, probably 30 years ago, I met a guy who, who, who uh, was, was very, very generous. I mean, he, he, he was a very faithful tither, and then in addition to tithing 10%, he also would give above and beyond. He was just very, very generous, but then one day he confided a deep, dark secret, and that was that he had been having multiple affairs, and that the reason he was so generous was because he was hoping that maybe God would see his generosity, see his, his sacrifice, and be merciful. But Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. The Bible says in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And then later on, we read in, that God says in Psalm 50, verse 10, he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Meaning, that you know what? God doesn't need our sacrifice. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our sacrifice. What does he want? What he wants is our heart. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul's all like, oh, we did this so we can offer sacrifice. We did this so we could be religious. We did this to show how much we love God. If you really love him, keep his commandments. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And so now as they pick it up, verse 32 to the end, we discover the, the reason that not even one Amalekite can be allowed to survive. And so in verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came in to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely uh, the, the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in, in Gebeah of, of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king over Israel. <coughs> it's quite a hack job. Anyway, have you ever been in a situation where you've, you've been forced to clean up someone else's mess? That's what's happening here. Samuel's now forced to clean up Saul's mess. He, he's forced to do what Saul failed to do. As he, as, he, as he now hacks him up into pieces, it says. Now we read this, we read a story like this, and we're like, you know, that's not very loving. You know I mean? How can a loving God give such a gruesome command? Well, now again, we need to keep in mind who the Amalekites were. The Amalekites were not only the perpetual enemy of God's people, uh, an enemy who, who would never stop until every last Jewish person was wiped off the face of the earth. But history tells us that they were also world famous for being brutal and savage. In fact, they were famous for human sacrifices, specifically sacrificing their newborn infants and their toddlers to the false pagan gods that they worshipped. In fact, the, the uh, Armarna uh, tablets of Egypt talk about how, how, how they were famous for, for brutally torturing and savagely uh, just, just, just torturing and attacking the women and children of their enemies before they finally murdered them. They, 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 were, they, they, they were brutal people. And God knew that, 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 that as long as even one Amalekite was allowed to survive, they would never stop attacking God's people. And by the way, that's exactly how it turns out. Now, now listen, we don't know how much time went by from the time that, that Saul captured Agag alive to the time that Samuel finally showed up and then put him to death. 
We don't know the, the, the exact amount of time that, that happened in between that, but, but evidently it was enough time for Agag to bear a son. We know that because later on in the book of 2 Samuel, we read that the son of Agag comes along and kills Saul. And so the enemy that Saul failed to finish off ended up finishing him off. But it doesn't end there. Later on in the book of Esther, we read how, how a, 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 an Amalekite, a, a descendant of Agag, his name was Haman, nearly was responsible for the Holocaust of almost 15 million Jews because they were the kind of people who would never stop until they completely destroyed God's people. Now, by the way, in the scripture, the Amalekites were, are, are often used as a type of the flesh. That is a, a symbol that represents our sinful flesh, our, 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 our sinful old nature. And this just reminds us that our, our sinful old nature, much like the Amalekites, cannot be reasoned with, they cannot be negotiated with, but rather the Bible tells us that, that, that our sinful nature has to die. Our flesh has to die. The Bible says we die to the flesh daily. In Romans 8, 13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you have put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now that phrase, put to death, the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, that phrase, put to death, literally can be translated, commit cold-blooded, premeditated murder. That's why the old King James renders it, mortify the flesh. As the old saying goes, the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. And so this just reminds us that when it comes to dealing with the sin in our lives, it's all or nothing. We either deal with all of it or the result is going to be as if we dealt with none of it. It's been well said that the sin in our lives that we fail to conquer will eventually conquer us. And that's what happened to Saul. He failed to conquer this last Amalekite, and in the end, it conquered him. I'd recently read that back in the year of, of 1519, Hernan Cortez uh, had, had set sail for Veracruz, Mexico. Now, upon their arrival, his crew was, was weary. Uh, they, 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 were, they were scared, and, and, and many of them wanted to turn around and go back to their old life. So Cortez gave the order to burn the ships knowing that if you burn the ships, it's impossible for the crew to turn back to their old life. So let me ask you this. How many of you struggle with the temptation of going back to your old life before Christ? You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you still struggle with an old addiction, an old habit, an old thought pattern. Maybe there's a relationship from the past that still has a hold on you right now. Well, Saul's failure is reminding us how important it is for us to burn the ships. That if we don't burn the ship of the past, we might go back to the past. Our past struggles can become our current failures. It reminds me of years ago when I, when I backslid and came back to the Lord. Now, a lot of you know my story. You know that I, I became a Christian. I gave my life to Christ when I was almost 16 years old, a sophomore in high school. But when I gave my life to Christ, I didn't give all of my life to Christ. I still kept on to like one or two sins. I kept a hold of one or two sins. You might say I had an agag in my life. But that sin grew and it grew and it grew to the point that finally, by the time I was a senior in high school, I had completely backslidden. In fact, there wasn't a, a day in my senior year that I showed up for school sober. But then it continued for a year after school. 
And I just kept going and kept going. I went off on the deep end and, and it finally got to the point where I got to the end of myself. I hit rock bottom and I, and, 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 and I was completely broken, but not after going to jail two or three different times. So finally, completely broken, I repent, I come back to the Lord, and when I come back to the Lord, I pray, and I say, Lord, you know what? I, 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 I need to give you 100%. I need to be all in. I need, it, it, it needs to be all or nothing. Because I understand that, that if I give you 99% and just hold on to 1% for myself, that 1% will become 5 and that 5% will become 20, and that 20% will become 50, and before you know it, I will be 100% backslidden. I'll be right back to where I once was. And so it's all or nothing. And so I knew that this meant I had to make some clean breaks in my life. A, a clean break from my old habits, my old addictions, my old hangouts, and a clean break from my old friends. You know, my friends that were still calling me up and saying, hey, you know what? Ever since you became, quote unquote, religious, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's like you, you don't want to hang out with us anymore. You know, I mean, I mean, you know, now you, you're always at Bible study and you're always at church, you're always doing this, but it's like you don't want to have any time for us. Like, hey, you know, I mean, you, you can still hang out with us. You can still, still come and do stuff. You don't have to drink or anything. You can just hang out and have fun. I mean, you know, just because you're religious doesn't mean you can't have fun. And I realized I had to make a clean break. I had to burn the ships. I had to break off those old habits, those old thoughts, and those old relationships. Because if I didn't, the thing that I kept alive would come back and finish me off. And so Saul's disobedience ultimately reminds us that when it comes to sin, when it comes to our old life, our old habits, our old thoughts, the, the, the old ways, if we keep even one of them around, keep even one of them alive, it will come back to haunt us. The sin we fail to conquer will conquer us. This is why the Bible says in Colossians 3 verse 5, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. It doesn't say to play with it. It doesn't say to toy with it. It says put it to death. It's all or nothing. We give 100% because if we hang on to one agag, it'll come back to finish us off. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes your word is hard to hear, but we need to hear it because maybe some of us this morning have an agag or two in our life, but they're breeding and one becomes another and another and another. And the sin that we fail to conquer is going to conquer us. Maybe it's in the process of conquering us. But Lord, we're reminded in the book of Romans that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We might feel like we're more than conquered. But Lord, in you, there's hope. In you, there's strength. In you, there's freedom. So Lord, we surrender the things in our lives, all of it. We give you the freedom to, to slay it, to cut it free, to cut it off. We need a clean break from everything because we want all of you and we want to give you all of us. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.